millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, it's, it's funny. I, um, I gave it, gosh, this is a long time ago now. I gave a talk must have been 10, 11 years ago, about technology to the university, Illinois Wesleyan University. They were, I was invited to talk about technology and society or something like that because I do music with electronics. And I gave a talk about essentially how I have a love-hate relationship with technology. You know, my, my work only happens because of technology. It's complete, like I'm not a purely acoustic composer who writes everything in pencil and paper and then who gives it to acoustic performers. That's not, that's not what I do. I do it sometimes, but that's not the main way that the music happens. I use technology to write. I use technology to make the electronic sounds, all of this stuff. But there's things about technology that I, that I hate. I hate that I'm relying on it. I hate that it crashes. I'm hate, I hate that it makes me think certain ways that I don't want to have to think. Um, it's sort of a this weird love hate. I mean, I, I remember giving an analogy to students years ago. Obviously, there are technologies that make our lives better. An easy example is the refrigerator. You know, like that's a great technology that allows me to have food when I need it, and I don't have to go chopping ice from a giant lake and put it in a house someplace stacked with hay to keep you know refrigeration over the course of the summer. Like it's nice to be able to plug it into the wall, but Unless you live in Scotland, in which case you just leave stuff everywhere all the time. It's cold enough to keep it <laughs> chill whenever you need it. That's funny. My um, my friend Craig, uh, the filmmaker that I've worked with a ton, when I used to go visit him in the winter, he did not have a refrigerator for a long time. So this is, Craig is a unique individual, but one of my favorite stories about Craig was shortly after he bought his apartment in 2005, six, something like that, four, I can't remember. Um, where he's lived for a long time now, he got an a notice from 
the gas company and they asked him if they wanted him or if he wanted them to turn off his gas because he hadn't used the gas in all the time he'd lived there. Like he'd never used it because he never ever cooked anything in his apartment. He also did not use a refrigerator. He went out to buy every meal at a restaurant or at a place and he bought his, he would just leave his apartment, walk around the corner to the local store and get a bottle of water and a few bottles of water and bring them back and he would you know, have them. And then next time he needed something, he'd go to the store and get them. Essentially, he treated the local grocery store as his refrigerator and he treated the local you know, restaurants as his kitchen. And he had been, prior to this, he had been a cook. I mean, he was a professional cook who worked for years as a, what's a catering chef. So, you know, he has, absolutely has cooking skills. He just didn't want to do it. Um, but I remember he got the, the notice from the gas company, do you want us to turn off your gas because you haven't used it? And he was like, yes. But the reason I brought this up is that we would use the refrigerator window. Whenever I was there in the wintertime, if something, like if we went to go buy something, like if I'm going to go buy a beer and then come back and I want to keep it cold, but I'm not going to get to drink it until five in the morning when the store is already closed, I would put it on the refrigerator window outside if it was the winter time. So same idea. It's a good way to get around it. <laughs> yeah, it works. I mean, you know, you don't need, you know, you don't need it. It's funny, you know, Craig is a, is a unique individual. That was one of the, he does have a refrigerator now. He has a small little refrigerator. He decided that was a good way to have cottage cheese and stuff like that. And he could, he didn't have to buy an individual cottage cheese, but it's only been about five years that he's had a small refrigerator in his, in his apartment in New York. Forces you to plan a lot more, be a lot more organized. Forces you to, yeah, forces you to plan. Oh no, he's insanely organized. He just doesn't need, uh, he just doesn't need to, <laughs> he just doesn't buy, buy food. His organization is based on what he gets done in a day. His, his schedule, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up a little bit, but his schedule when he was in a writing session would be he would wake up and then he would, you know, go to the bathroom or whatever, and then he would roll over and he would start typing and he would edit the previous day's work for four or five hours. Then he would allow himself a cup of coffee. He called it earning, earning his coffee. And then he would get back to work and he would write the next day's thing for four or five hours. Then he would get his first meal. And I was like, I can't do that. My stomach would kill me if I did that. But whenever we, would have, we had these writing sessions when we would write music together and I'd be in New York working with him on stuff in his apartment. And usually I'd get up a little before him because his schedule is really late. And I'm actually on an early schedule now. But when, I'm, when we're working together on music, usually we're getting up at 12 or 1 and then going to bed at 5 or something like that in the morning. Uh, and I would get up a little before him and start working on the day's material, but I would get up. The first thing I would do after is I would go get a cup of coffee and then I would come back and then I would start to work. But Craig was always like, man, we got to earn our coffee. What are you doing? And I would be like, no, I get my coffee when I wake up. I, don't, I earned it by, by being alive and being a, like asleep. Like that's my earning the coffee. I kind of do that a little bit as well, to be honest, not quite as extreme as five hours, but I'll usually do, yeah, like an hour or two of work before I have a cup of coffee. Do but well, yeah. that wasn't a thing until lockdown. Lockdown has kind of oh, okay. changed the schedule a little <laughs> bit. It's made things a little bit more flexible. Yeah, that's true. Although I, I'm definitely a. I wake up, I have coffee, and then sometime after that, I have another coffee. What's lo- what lockdown changed for me in relation to coffee is that I stopped having cream in my coffee. That was the shift. Is I, and originally it was because I didn't want to have to go to the store as often, and so I was like, and one of the things that you know, make you go back again was getting more, you know, more half and half. And my wife has half and half in her coffee. And I was like, well, if I take it out, then that's less, you know, cuts the half and half and half. So 
we can go longer without having to go to the grocery store. And then I actually realized I liked it. Now I just have black coffee. I think you get accustomed to it. It's like I haven't taken salt on any food probably in eight years, maybe nine years. Wow. Because when no you salt. when you stop for a while, whenever someone puts salt on something, like if I go back to my folks, my mom makes dinner and she puts salt on it, all you taste is mm-hmm. the salt after you've stopped. Oh, how funny. It's, I feel like I've done the reverse. I've, had, or I've slowly added more and more salt, but maybe it's, that's one of the things. It's funny because my daughter, she thinks we put too much salt on everything, but it's probably kind of what you're getting at, which is she, it's, it's newer for her tongue or something, so she doesn't need it, whereas we've slowly built up our tolerances for salt, and it's like salt, 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 salt. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that, but no salt. You just don't add salt. If salt is in there already, you Oh, eat no, it. I'll put salt if I'm cooking. I just won't add seasoning on. No. You don't add it, yeah? No. Okay, yeah, fascinating. That's, that's pretty interesting. But, oh we, well. got, we went on that tangent at the start of that. You were speaking about your relationship to technology and how you'll, you'll work right. on both digital and acoustic instruments. Do you find that you kind of get different emotions or do you explore a different emotional spaces depending on whether it's a digital or acoustic instrument? I don't know that I would say I get to different emotional spaces, but it definitely has, there are different processes for the different things. And I do sometimes intentionally put myself in the opposite space. So f- uh, for if I, if, as a way to generate content. So for example, I might be working on something that involves a lot of electronic sounds and I'll be manipulating them in whatever program I'm using, but then I'll step away from that. Like it can be easy to just stay there and listen again and again and again and get this reinforcement from the technology. It's like a reassurance which I think can be nice on the one hand. On the other hand, sometimes it, it sort of takes you down specific paths or, or you go in certain directions. And so I do sometimes will, will force myself to leave it, go to pencil and paper and write something on pencil and paper instead. And I, I think you can get different kinds of ideas in different spaces, um, whether or not, I don't know if that you have to, and you have to tap into different spaces in your mind. If you're writing something that say, let's say I'm writing something for trumpet. If I write the thing for trumpet with a trumpet sample on the computer, it sounds like a real trumpet. I'm getting the assurance of, oh, this is the timbre of the trumpet. But if I go and I write it on a piano and then I have to sing and I have to imagine the trumpet in my mind, I'm exercising something different. And I think that you can get to different spaces as a result, Um, in part because the trumpet sort of sounds like what you hear in the computer, but not exactly what you hear in the computer, especially if it's, a, if it's a real person in a real space. I talk about this a lot with students who, you, who compose using software. I have this one student who's writing something now for violin, and he writes a lot of double stops, which is when you play two notes at the same time with two fingers, um, on usually on you know, different strings. And he loves the double stops. He's always writing double stops. And I'm like, you know, double stops on a computer sound like two notes played together, but double stops played by a violin have a different feeling and you don't know what that's going to be uh, until you really sort of try it out. Uh, and some of them work and some of them don't. And, and so I was like, you know, don't get too attached to writing all these double stops all the time, you know, work with real violinists to see what's going to work. And part of it is you can, you can look at charts and they can say, well, these are the kinds of things that will work. And, and so am I using, am I writing those or not? Because the technology will play them even if they're impossible. There's advantages to doing that, but there's also disadvantages. You can get sort of locked into stuff that maybe is a bad idea or won't work. That's not quite emotion, which I think is what you were getting at at the beginning. But um, there, I think that I think they both have strengths and weaknesses. And for me, that this the challenge is 
knowing when to pull myself out of one and use the other instead as a way to get something. How long will you develop something for typically before kind of moving into something else or feeling like you need to make that change like you're saying there? Usually it has to do with if I'm just being successful or not. You know, I tend to find if I'm having success with something, I'll stay with that thing. And I think a lot of it has to do with just trusting process in the sense that, you know, like this winter I I was, uh, or sorry, last, last year, pandemic time, I had a tendency to sort of stay up late. That was kind of my mo- mode of operation that I would stay up late. I talked earlier about how I was staying up super late when I was working with Craig, but I was always naturally a go to bed at two in the morning kind of character, you know, and I was trying to write. At first, I wasn't very productive in during a lot of pandemic, and I decided to make a change because I wasn't getting stuff accomplished. So I started getting up at like six in the morning to write. I was working on this percussion ensemble piece, and I wanted to, I just wasn't making the progress I needed to make. And so I got up, started getting up at six and working on that first thing for a couple hours in the morning. And that shift made a huge difference, just forcing myself to come at it from a different angle made me find ways to be successful or allowed me to find ways to be successful. Um, so I think sometimes it's just recognizing if something is working or not. And if not, be, be willing to make a change into some other mode of operation. I, t- I talk about sometimes with students, like, where do you write and how do you write? I ask them to tell me, what's the situation? Do you have a desk? Do you always work at the piano? Do you work at your house? Do you work you know, in a coffee shop? Like, what's your environment? Uh, and in part, I think a lot of people, times people don't think about that stuff. They don't think where, how the location of their writing has an impact on what they're able to accomplish. But I think it can have a huge impact on what people are able to accomplish because they feel comfortable and, and, and ready to be successful in that space. At the same time, sometimes you need to change to a different space or a different location because you'll have different ideas or Uh, something else will get spurred as a result of that change, whether it's using notation software on the computer that plays stuff for you, then we'll go try the piano. Something else will happen. Go back to notation. I mean, it's interesting to look at that in the context of what you were saying a moment ago with your schedule. Do you think that getting up at 6am was the thing that changed it or is it just the fact that it's a change in itself? I think it was both. I think the change in itself made me reapproach it. Like say, it also kind of told me like, I need to I needed to succeed at this and making a big shift in the way I was doing something kind of signaled to me like, Hey, you're, you need to be successful at this and what you're doing isn't working. So let's just try something else, which I think for me, I felt a little bit of like, I've got to get this done. Um, There's a deadline, there's pressure. I wasn't being successful. There's a bit of a recognition on my part. It's kind of like, you know, they, they say sometimes if you you know, like with alcoholics or something. And you have like one of the processes like telling everybody you're an alcoholic and then like it's you acknowledging it. It's also you owning, needing, realizing you need to take responsibility for it and saying it to somebody else makes you take responsibility for it. For me, by saying, like I said to my, like my wife's like, what, you're getting up at six? What, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, I'm getting up at six. Some of my friends are like, what are you, what is, wait, Jeff's up at six? They get a text from me at 6.30 in the morning. I'm like, what is this? You're not supposed to be asleep. And I wasn't doing that like to, to be responsible to myself or something. But that was part of, part of what happened by making that kind of change or by doing something like that is you do realize that like, you do take it seriously. It's sort of like, okay, I have to be successful. And I think sometimes own, like, that's a big shift, but there are small shifts where it's like, I'm doing something a certain way. Instead of just letting myself continue to do it that way, I'm gonna change and do something else. And that I, th- I think that just making, being willing to make the change is part of what 
will allow a change to take place because you're ready for it in a way. Yeah, it's that idea of transition kind of sparking creativity. Yeah, it's transition sparking creativity. It's, it's just sort of like ownership or uh, responsibility. And then I, I talk a lot of, with, with people about how do you build an arsenal of ways to make stuff? And I think a lot of times what I'm teaching when I'm teaching composition is not, you know, harmony or, you know, like form or an understanding of form or something like that. What I'm really doing is trying to give people a, a skill set, an arsenal of, of, of tactics and tools that they can employ to help them access their creativity and then know when it's being employed uh, successfully. It's, it's, it's really like techniques and skill sets for ways to create stuff. And then they have to then go create the stuff. Uh, and it's the same for me. I have, I, have to have, I have to be able to draw on things to help me be successful. And I think one of those tactics sometimes is change location, change technology, you know, put thing, and you have to trust that it will be successful. You know, like I, I don't always have the right idea for a sound, but it's like, well, what do I need here? I need something that fills up the space. All right, let's go over into Max and pull up some of the patches that I've made that have effects and just start running things through the patches and see what comes up. And then maybe one of those ideas will be interesting. Um, not always the case, but that's one of the things that I can do in my skill set to give me interesting sounds. I've got pedals that I can go to. I've got, um, you know, other kinds of things that I'm like, oh, I'll draw on this, this technique and just see what happens. Different programs as well. Um, yeah, different programs. I, I, I'm trying to think I use reason a lot. I use, you know, reasons there's plugins are, that I like. Reason's a free software, right? No, Reason's, well, I think, I think there, is, there is Reason free, there's Reason. Reason is, um, Reason is a rack tool. The premise of Reason is, it's been around for a long time. They used to have something called Rebirth, which was like a, a beat sort of making thing. And then they had uh, Reason, the premise of Reason is that you've got racks, rack items in a digital rack that you can flip around and you can patch into other things. But it's like having a bunch of racks of hardware synths or, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it was, I used it in part because it was a good way to teach analog synthesis because you could pull up on, there's a, a, an object in there called the subtractor, which is essentially a subtractive synthesizer. I mean, I have behind me this a Moog uh, Model D, which is sort of like the classic old Moog. Um, oh, wait, I was turning my, my computer as if you could see it. I was not turning my camera. <laughs> there's my camera. That's the Moog over there. And the Moog is a classic old, you know, analog synth. And it has three oscillators. Uh, they go through, you know, you can, add, you can choose different uh, oscillator types. They, you can blend them together in different ways. It goes through a filter. It's got an envelope um, that you can use to adjust to say how it goes through the filter, as well as just the general amplitude envelope for the, for the instrument, there's modulators, and you can choose what you're going to use to modulate it with. So it's a simple subtractive synthesis concept. The subtractor in Reason is essentially like this. It's not a replication of the Model D, but it's a it's a subtractive synth. And so um, I use that to teach to teach synthesis. And so you know, like that's a you just go in there, you start changing some things around, you you put some oscillators together in different combinations. You say, what happens if I pull this up an octave? What happens if I detune things by a little bit you just try some techniques and you get some different kinds of sounds so reasons when i use i use this program max a lot that's what i learned when i was in school years ago and max is uh you know it was originally started as a midi program and then they added the audio component in the 90s 
which they called MSP. And uh, so Max MSP, as it used to be called, was this, oh, when you start it, you get like a blank screen and then you can kind of do whatever you want and you connect these objects together. It's used a lot with Live now. If you've ever heard of, um, a lot of people use Ableton Live. Yeah. Max, Max for Live is the Max part of that. And that's the, the Max part of Max for Live is the, the, you can make your own essentially processors that can do all kinds of different things. And so I've made a bunch of stuff in Max that, and I've used them for live improvisations. I've used them for performing with other people. And then sometimes I use it as a sound design space where you can bring stuff in and run them through different delays or pitch shifters or re- analysis, resynthesis. There's all kinds of different stuff. Um, it can be, it can, it's, it's fun though, because nobody has my patches. Like that is a cool piece of it. When I run it through my technique and Max, it's my thing. And nobody has, this, nobody has the same analysis resynthesis thing that I built. It's not that crazy, but it's, it's own, no one has that thing. No one uses the exact same you know, weird buffer playback things that I made that were a giant pain to make, but that are, that are fun for ways to spit sound around. Made them a long time ago now. But. You know, you look back at your kind of creative career over the last while. Can you see developments in your style in tandem with developments in technology? Can you see when you kind of bring a new element and how it impacts the music that you're creating? Yeah, for sure. There have been a few key things. The first key one for me was probably in the early 2000s. I started making stuff that had, I would, I would use recording software to re- record samples of people playing sounds, like a single pitch on a, a clarinet or a, a whatever, any instrument. They would play a bunch of different sounds for me. I'd record those sounds as held tones. Then I would process them in a particular way to sort of stretch them. And then I would detune them by small amounts. So I would have the same pitch that could play back, you know, like ba, 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 ba. But I would barely shift the tuning of those notes. So they'd be like, we say in, 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 the, in the keys of a piano, there's the, between each note, we say there's a hundred cents. That's how we, that's how we say like the differentiation between a C and a C sharp uh, is a hundred cents. So 50 cents is a quarter tone and a hundred cents is a semitone. But you can detune things with, by one cent if you want, which is completely imperceptible to the human ear. You can't, like if I change something by a cent, no one would know that it was any different. If you change it by eight cents, it's almost there you can kind of tell if you change it by like 20 cents you're like oh this is this is a little different so i was doing a lot of stuff that was barely tuned by small amounts and then i would try to shift things over time i wrote this piece for solo clarinet once where over the course of the movement it's like a five minute thing a d slowly shifts down to a b but the goal is that it's you can't tell that it's happening because the note is just played like eight cents different each time um, and so from note to note, you can't tell that it happened, but by the end, you're like, wait, how is this? This is different. Um, so I did a series of pieces from about 2001 to probably 2007 or eight that used this technique a lot. And so I just became infatuated with what I could do with this and employed it in a bunch of different pieces. Then later I mentioned what I started doing in Max with, um, the analysis resynthesis thing that I mentioned, which essentially means you just listen to the audio of a sound. You see what components are there, and then you make, then you replicate the sounds that you heard, but using synthetic means. So it sounds like the original, but it's a synthesized version of the original. So a trumpet turns into uh, sine tones, essentially, 
but it sounds like the same trumpet that it heard. And so I would use that, and I use that in combination with these things that were recording small samples of sound and spitting them back in different ways. And so I started doing a bunch of pieces after that that use those tools with live performers. And the idea was that they, uh, I was interested in letting live performers sort of improvise and then set up parameters for how these, perf- these audio techniques would interact with the live performer. And that be kind of came what I did for the next while. So those were sort of two key ones and they were based on technological things that I discovered. Other people had discovered them before or whatever, but there was when I, when they made sense to me and how I employed them. How long does it take before you stop kind of using them quite consistently and they just become another tool in your toolkit? I guess for me, it's just sort of when I get tired of it or I felt like I had, I'd used it and there was, I just had something else. I think that was all for it. For me, in both cases with those things, it's like I had did, I did a lot of stuff with them and then I'm like, all right, I need to do something else. I don't know that there was any, anything momentous about it. It was just, I, need, I knew I needed to do something else. What do you find you kind of go to from that point then? What was the something else that you came to? That's a good question. I think um, from piece to piece, it's, it's hard to say like, oh, this is what I went to next or this is why I changed it. It just kind of is, I found that I couldn't go back and write the same stuff that I did before. There were some occasions when I thought to myself, oh, I want to go back and write like I did this. This 2003 piece was successful. I had a piece in 2003 called Trio, really creative name. Uh, Trio was not my best title. It was, I'd gone through, I'll go through a little tangent. I went through a period where I had really bad titles, really bad titles, where I would take, a, take words and jam them together. And it was like, this is not a good title. So then I said, let's just clear the slate. And I started naming pieces with really simple things that at least weren't bad. And trio was one of them because it was just like, well, it's a trio. Fine. It works. And later I started, it works. Yeah. I had a piece called miniatures. Fine. That's what they are. Then later I got to better titles, but trio was a successful piece. It was played by a lot of people. It was, uh, I thought it worked. There's some magic in that thing that I couldn't quite explain. So 10 years later, I was like, let me try to see if I can recapture the trio magic somehow. And I realized I can't, you can't, I couldn't do it. I was like, I, I can't, like, what is it that made that work? I don't know. It was just, it just came together. And I think that's the, that's the thing with me for, for that's one of the things I learned in general with music. For any individual piece, I cannot know if it's going to be successful or not as I'm writing it. And you just have to write it. And then I can look back now over, the, over my career and say, like, these pieces worked. These pieces were better than others. These songs were, you know, were really captured. At the time, I thought all of them were good. Like, I hoped all of them would be good. But looking back, you're like, these just worked out better than others. And I think that's actually a difficult thing for a lot of younger people. Because when you have a catalog of five songs or ten songs and you're working on the next one, you want it to be good. Because you don't have, you know, like this, you need it to be good. When you have, you know, when you've written 100 songs and you're like, okay, well, some of them were good and some of them weren't. The next one, eh, maybe it'll be good, maybe it won't. But in another 100 songs, I can be pretty confident that some of them are going to be good. And some of them won't be. But when you have a small amount, it's hard, it's hard to, to be confident that there will be good ones at some point. And now I can trust that if I just follow the process and I try to be true to myself and make things that I think are interesting, some of them will be good. That's the best I can hope for. Yeah. I mean, that revelation you're talking about there where you realize that you can't recreate something 
I imagine that can also be quite liberating. Like if you think about it in the context of your film scores, it means that every time you're going to kind of be able to approach it with a fresh slate and do something new and kind of different and interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're I think that's completely your previous work. Yeah, I think that's. I think you're right. You just have to, you know, just go in and do the best you can and and have fun and explore and don't, you know, don't worry about it. Like that is that is something that I found is I just can't worry about it. I think a piece of it though is I have to make a lot of content because. I mean, in the context of a film score, you know, they, they don't want me, they don't want to have my 10 songs that are junk. They only, they only want the good ones that are still left. So, in fact, we learned that a little bit, Craig and I did between when we did the soundtrack for Brawl and then we did the soundtrack for Dragged. When we did the soundtrack for Brawl, we wrote, I think, well, seven songs are on the soundtrack. I think we, we had a few, obviously, demo ideas for other songs that didn't make it but we really only recorded seven songs and like that we took really from beginning to end and completed and so they kind of uh, all needed to to work at some level whereas with drags we were like hey we want to have a higher quality like bar for everything and so we made a point to make way more demos so that we could be more confident that we would be picking from a higher uh or that we'd be picking from 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 better stuff for the final. I mean, this is a typical thing with albums, right? You have, you know, you make a bunch of songs and then you record a lot of them, but you don't actually have to put all of them on the soundtrack or on the album. That's why you have yeah. B sides, and you know, it's that stuff. But we did, uh, we we did, you know, have like the let's just make as much stuff and have as much fun as we could, and and then and see where it takes you. There's a lot of freedom in that. Do people ever misunderstand that though? Because there's this whole kind of you know quality versus quantity argument which a lot of people seem to use to justify low output. But I always kind of read it as in order to get to the quality, you need to produce a very high quantity. I, I'm of the belief that in order to get to the quality, you have to produce a high quantity. That, that is, I, I think that the, I mean, there are going to be some people who maybe only put five things out and they're all great, but uh, that's not me. I mean, I can speak for myself. I need to make a lot of stuff to produce things to, that are, that some of which are, are good. Uh, and part of it is, you know, the things that might interest me aren't necessarily going to interest everybody, you know, and that's okay. Uh, but I need to be able to just kind of pursue an idea that I think is interesting and see where it takes me and then, uh, and try to meet the logic of the song or logic of the idea and do the best I can with it. Part of it also has to do with the project. You know, I, I, with in the case of a, of a film score, you might come up with material that's great, but that just doesn't quite fit that project. Uh, I know when we were working on, in fact, when we were working on Dragged, the, the songs for Dragged, we had nine, I think we recorded nine songs that we were, or we had 10 songs that we recorded with vocalists and basically took to the end. And then only eight of them made the movie, in part because a couple of them just Craig is like, I can't find the, quite find the spot for this in the film that's going to make sense because we had a couple of options and we weren't sure which was going to work out the best. And so like, well, this one fit the material better. So I'm going to use that song rather than this other one that we made that could have also worked, but just didn't have a space because it didn't work best in the film. In a couple of cases, I know he also wanted to have songs used more than once. I'm forgetting the which songs in dragged got used more than once but there's a couple of them that at least get played in 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 part twice and the thinking was that it would um kind of call back a little bit like sort of like having a thematic idea that repeats 
that definitely happened in Brawl, the God Bless My Mama song, which I believe starts the movie with the opening credits, then is called back later when uh, when Jennifer Carpenter's character is, is driving in, in town or dri- you know, driving to like the, the whatever the final meet spot and, uh, and we hear the song again. And so that was, um, that was intentional for, on Craig's part. Yeah, you're kind of bringing it in a narrative sense at that point. Yeah, he was bringing that in a narrative sense. And he wanted to, to create these connections across the film. Uh, you know, it's interesting with, with pop songs, you don't tend to do that, right? You tend to do it more with, uh, with score pieces where you make connections across the film because you can repeat a thematic idea, you know, a leitmotif or whatever. But you can't, I mean, I think that there is an interesting connection to that in relation to pop songs. The, the idea that genre can almost stand in for leitmotif in the sense that if you repeat a genre and you associate it with something, then that genre calls that thing uh, or, or connotes that idea or that character. Um, so like in Wagner's leitmotif where you've got you know, musical melodic shapes that connect to characters or, or situations, uh, if you connect uh, you know, a character to a certain kind of music, then that kind of music has, its, has some character to it and it also connects to the person. So, for example, in uh, in Dragged Across Concrete, where Vince Vaughn's character is, oh, you know, is listening to jazz, and he's a dis- he's a different character than than Mel Gibson's character. They're supposed to be different in age. I mean, they're not that different in age in real life, but in the movie, I think twenty Vince years is supposed think, to be it? supposed to be twenty years. I mean, maybe they are twenty years different in age. I'm not sure, but I think originally the premise is that Vince was supposed to be sort of the younger guy, and and Mel is the older guy. Uh, the grizzled veteran who should have, you know, risen up the force, but is, you know, hasn't for, you know, a variety of reasons. And so Vince is a little bit more cultured and, and uh, listens, you know, and listens to, to jazz. Uh, and that was, that was an intentional, like, well, let's connect this genre to this person. And it brings with it the little bit of the, like, you know, who listens to jazz and what does that say about them? Um, and it sort of serves as a, a, you know, reinforces that that character idea in a way that a leitmotif can, uh, but it's not the same as a re- repetition of an exact melodic phrase, which is what normally you get. Were you aware of that narrative usage of it when you were writing it? Did you know how it was kind of going to be deployed in that way? We, I, I knew that Vince's character was associated with jazz. What's interesting is uh, for both, so I've done three movies with Craig, Bone Tomahawk and then Dragged and or Brawl and Dragged. With Bone Tomahawk, we, I scored it in a traditional fashion. I went to, you know, they had made a cut of the movie. They had temp music in there. I think they had... What was temp? Well, they had, the, they had temp, the temp music was just uh, string quartets. I think they had, I think they were using some, I want to say that they used some, some music from There Will Be Blood. They used some other random temp music. And then they had, they might have used a Henrik Goreski string quartet at some point, I think he told me. And then they had... Some scenes had soundtrack music from, uh, oh, what is that? It's a Kyoshi Kurosawa, the Japanese horror film. I forget the name of it. Cure? Uh, Cure. Do you know the movie Cure? No. Cure, you say, Cure. You say so Kurosawa. Kyoshi, not, not that Kurosawa, the other Kurosawa. So not, <laughs> not a Kira Kurosawa. I was thinking for, <laughs> I don't think he ever did a horror movie. I was confused for a moment. No, no. Not a Kira Kurosawa. <laughs> no, not, not that guy. There's a, there's a modern Japanese uh, director named Kyoshi Kurosawa. Who made these uh, sort of existential horror movies that, that if you know, twenty years ago there was this this influx of American remakes of Japanese horror movies like The Ring, uh, 
the ring and those kinds of things. Exactly. So Kurosawa was associated with that Japanese movement, the Kiyoshi Kurosawa. He's still making stuff. But there was a movie he made called Cure, which is really enjoyable. And maybe enjoyable is maybe the wrong word, but it was a fun movie. <laughs> I liked it. I had a good time with it. It was a horror movie. Um, and there was some sound, very little score in that. And there was these like atmospheric spaces that we took out of that. And he used as the temp music for some of the atmospheric stuff in Bone Tomahawk. And then when, when we did the score for that movie, I went to New York. I watched the, 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 the film with the temp music in. And then Craig and I went and scored basically to the spots where they had put the temp music and figured out how we would fit it in. And we, you know, designed the stuff on, on we used Reason, actually. I mentioned it earlier. We used Reason software, wrote the stuff in there, and kind of made it match, kind of wrote to picture in a traditional fashion. For Brawl and for Dragged, I had the experience of seeing the movies for the first time in Venice uh, at the screening at the Venice Film Festival. I did not see either movie while we were writing music for it. So definitely not normal for a composer. But it's because Greg, I mean, Craig co-composed all the stuff with me and he knew where he wanted the music to go. And so he would just give me what he felt I needed to know to help him realize it in those spots, but he didn't tell me everything. So I knew in Brawl that Vince was associated with jazz, for example. Uh, and I knew the character, or sorry, not in Brawl, in Dragged, Vince was associated with jazz. And I knew that in Dragged, or sorry, now I'm messing him up. Vince's character in Brawl was associated with 70s soul music. And he listened to 70s soul music in his car driving around. And so I knew that going in. I also knew for the score music in that movie, the incidental music in that movie, I knew that we were writing pieces that connected to spaces and locations. And he would tell me about the location. He'd say, okay, this is going to be, we're seeing this prison, Red Leaf, from a distance. And so we're writing the music that's going to be like seeing the prison from a distance. Uh, and then that was, that was what I knew going into it. But I didn't know, like, I didn't even know what exactly happened in the script. Like, I didn't know the stories when I saw, when I wrote the music with him for this. I literally saw them for the first time in the premiere when we were in Venice watching them at the, at the festival. What are you tapping into emotionally then? Because I imagine it must impact that quite heavily. Yeah. Well, what we're tapping into emotionally is, is Craig's lyrics. So in the sense of the songs, it's just the lyrics that he has. And, you know, in his case, he wants the music to serve specific functions in the movie. Uh, and he has, the, you know, he's interested in, in making his own stuff that and creating as much of it as possible for his own films. And so I help facilitate the stuff in the movie and we have a great time working together. We've worked together well for more than 30 years now. We've been friends, but the, and we started making music together for the first time, probably in the early nineties. But for me, in terms of tapping into the emotional stuff, it's his lyrics. And, and then what he tells me is the, um, is the emotion that we're shooting for. So it's not, not based on what I've seen, you know, Vince doing in the screen, but rather what, how Craig translates that to me. So he has a good sense of the emotion, but I have a sort of a different lens into the emotion, but I have something. It's almost like he's trying to balance it out because he almost has too much of a sense of the emotion. So he's trying to counteract that by giving you less than he does. Maybe, you know, that's an interesting idea. Like he, I mean, he is writing the, the you know, he is writing the lyrics based on, and he knows where he wants these songs to go. Oftentimes, the you know, like he'll say, "Give me a, give me a, an idea that sort of fits this idea or gets this song," and he might even be tapping into an existing soul song. 
So for example, when we were doing God Bless My Mama, that when we were writing that song for, for Brawl, you know, there's tons of great 70s soul that we love. Uh, you know, the uh, Spinners and, and Marvin Gaye and Willie Hutch and all this stuff. So Willie Hutch has a song called Mama, which I love. And the Spinners have a song, Sadie. Um, Don't you know I love you, sweet Sadie? Uh, and that song is like about mama, right? So there's this, there's this great mama songs in, in the 70s and Craig wanted to tap into that. So when he's saying we're working on this song, the emotion I'm thinking about is what I know of Sadie and what I know of, of the Willie Hutch song and others like that, that I'm then tapping into. So it's kind of, it is this, as you say, there's kind of a, like Craig has it more directly, but I have oblique senses of what it is based on my own understanding of, of the music already as well as what Craig is going for. And then what we in turn create together with the lyrics that he writes that are fresh. You know, he starts writing new stories and thinking about it as a, as a novelist when he's writing these songs, he's thinking about, he's not trying to write exactly to what it says on picture, but just thinking about the emotional of the, of the, of the content. Yeah, in the same way that a final film doesn't follow a script directly. Like it takes a script, but then kind of builds on it a little bit. Potentially, I mean, I mean yeah, I think from picture to picture that can vary. Uh, you know, how much of it they do exactly versus how much of it they, they don't do exactly. And of course they have to, you know, whenever you get in and you have to realize, or when you're, when you're trying to realize something, you have the limitations that you're, that, that are there. You can't necessarily have the environment that you imagined in your head when you wrote the script. You can't get the performance exactly that you imagined because the person is a unique person and they're going to deliver it with a slightly different timbre or quality or whatever. An interesting, I think, example too, that, so the song for both back dragged and brawl we have closing credit songs sung by the ojs and in they kind of have something to do with lyrically with the the movie actually all three of them kind of have this all three of the songs we wrote for the closing credits have a little bit of a like what was the movie about sensibility in the lyrical content and in 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 bone tomahawk you know, almost absurdly so, where it's like we recount the, you know, the actions of the town. Uh, and, you know, the, the first line is, there was a frontier town, you know, and it's like about that. We do the same thing, though, in, in Dragged and Brawl, but a little bit more oblique, obliquely, I think, in, I use that to use that word again, in, Buddy, in Buddy's Business, the song that we use at the end of Brawl, it's not about, it's not Bradley, like it's not Bradley's business, but it sort of is about Bradley. And the fact that he's doing stuff, you know, he's dealing drugs again, and it's like, well, what's going on? Uh, and he's, you know, doing some bad stuff, and people are chasing him. But it's not really about Bradley. It's sort of, it's about that idea. And so I think Craig's not trying to write the story of Bradley in Buddy's Business, and he's not trying to write the story of Dragged in Shotgun Safari, the song that's the end of, at the end of Drag. But they connect to them. And so for me, as someone who's helping work on these these songs. It's not that it has to be exactly the same for me to tap into the emotion because the emotion that's in that in these songs I'm working on that emotion on the story that's in this in this song which he's trying to position in relation to his movie. It's not that it has exactly the lyrics that happen in the movie but it connects to it. In the same way that you when you're doing any uh song placement, you know if you're doing music supervision and you're trying to find the song that fits this scene, you could pick lyrics that exactly describe what's happening on screen. Or you can pick lyrics that connect to it and have a phrase that are the, is the same. Or maybe it just conjures the emotion, but the lyrics are singing about something slightly different. I think that's the way Craig was kind of trying to tap into it is from that perspective. 
It's more interesting. I think so. I think it's more interesting if it's making a connection, but allows you to make extra musical connections or other connections that maybe aren't quite uh, hit the nail on the head. Although, as I said, when we did the song for Bone Tomahawk, the final song at the end of Bone Tomahawk, the credits music, some people liked it. Some people did not like it because they felt it was a little bit too nail on the head. And that, that's fine. You know, I remember one of my, one of my favorite moments uh, coming out of that was when the New York Times said something like, you know, even the final song was worth staying seated for or something like that. I'm like, hey, great. I mean, it's a weird song, but it's fun. We had a great time. And we were trying to think of those classic, uh, you know, Morricone songs and some of those others from the, from the 60s and 70s, those old Western songs that, you know, like some of those songs. What's the, oh, what's that song? Ringo. There's a Ringo song. And it's like, uh, what's, I can't remember the name of the movie that they did, but the character is Ringo. It might be, might be that the movie is Ringo, but the, you listen to the lyrics and it's like, it's that. It's, I kiss at last the beloved ground of my land. As he comes back, it's like all it, the lyrics tell you the story of the song. And it's, it's delightful. I, I love that stuff. With the way that you were saying that the latter two of those films were kind of, the music to them was done from your point of view or from your perspective when you were working on it in a slightly non-traditional way where you weren't completely filled in on what was going on. How did the emotion that you were tapping into for the score, or not the score, but the music you were composing for it, compare to the emotion you got when you saw the final film? Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's an interesting experience. I will say, uh, you know, Craig tries to sort of save the movie for me so that I can have the experience of seeing the movie while being fresh. That's impossible. You know, when I'm working on, when I've worked on, I don't know how many hours I spent tuning the, the, the strings that to match the, you know, the vocals in, in God bless my mom and some of these other songs. Then I go hear that song in the movie. Like I've got this weird thing where the visual is something I've never seen before. And the audio is something I've listened to for countless hours. So it's different. Like there's no way it can be completely fresh. Uh, and I, I, I can't imagine too many people, if anybody, anyone has the experience that I have seeing things like that. I suppose if you wrote a song completely unrelated to a movie and then that movie got, that song got used in, in a, in a film, you would have this weird experience of knowing the song really well and now seeing it applied to a context that you didn't intend, you know, like the Led Zeppelin writes a song and then they see it at the beginning, you know, in, in uh, what's it fast times when the guys drive down the street and like, you know, the, you know, the cashmere use in fast times, you know, like, like that experience must have been interesting for some, I would think for someone like Robert Plant. She's got so much emotional it baggage context. with it. You have all these experiences that are connected to her that are now right. kind of juxtaposing and contrasting the emotion you're getting from the yeah, film. Exactly. It's the, the emotional baggage is impossible to shed completely. Uh, and so for me, watching these movies where I've spent so many hours and put so much time and effort into it and, and, you know, obviously I love these songs on their own. And then you see him in the movie. It's it's a it's a fun experience. It's delightful when you see you know the audience responding to these songs and 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 experiencing the the film in real time. Um, but it's also a little strange. It, like I'm trying to stay in the movie, but I can't completely. It wasn't for me with all the with both brawl and dragged. I got to see them at multiple screenings after I saw the premiere, and by the like the second or third time, I was better at really understanding what was happening in the film. Uh, in the sense that, like, I think I was able to watch the film a little bit more and just experience the film. The first time it was hard to just experience the movie. Is that because you've gotten some of it out of your system? Yeah, I, exactly. Like the first time it, when I'm watching, and then Brad, you know, and Bradley gets in the car and he starts and he turns it on, and then you hear, 
you know, give, you know, I'll give you a ride or something. I'm like that. All of a sudden I'm just taken into that space. But then the next time I watch the movie and I know that's going to happen, I'm not, yeah, then I'm actually just sort of uh, listening. So yeah, it was different. Did you know the narrative use of that where it was both going to be playing in each car? And they both had the same song and they were listening to it at the same time. Oh, yeah. And you mean in, in Drive. Oh, so, or, or sorry, in Dragged. So this was yeah. kind of a funny, in Dragged, this was kind of a funny thing. So we were working on that song, which Butch was singing, the drive-in song. And, you know, that song has a great, I love the emotional stuff in there. That one and, and, and the, the I'm writing a letter that, I, I, for, that was in Brawl, both of those which were Butch songs. Lovely songs that I, I was thrilled to, to, to work on. They have, and the lyrics are really pretty emotional in both cases. And so he told me, like, I'm working on the, the, the lyric, and I will say the lyrics in those songs don't connect to what's happening on screen. So he's trying to conjure the emotion in both cases, but that's not the emotion that the characters are experiencing in, in either film at that time. Uh, in any case, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't realize for Dragged that the song that they were going to use at the end of the film was going to be playing on the car radios both for Tori Kittles and for Mel Gibson's character. But, so this is, this is a funny story. I knew, it was, I knew that it was going to get used at some point on radios. That's all I knew. There's a music supervisor or a music, music coordinator or something like that. I forget the exact title that the person had. And officially, this person was the person that wrote down when the songs appeared in the movie. And it had something to do with some paperwork, like what the song title was, where it appeared in the movie. I think it was going to get filed with, with like the rights agencies and all this stuff. And so there was an email that uh, I was on. And she, she wrote down, she said, so the song that plays at the end of the movie when the characters are, are dragging and have the bodies in the back of the car is this song. And Craig, Craig was like, yes, that's right. And then he wrote me separately. He's like, God. he's like, now you know what happens in that, at that part of the movie. <laughs> so I only knew about it because it was spoiled by, the, by someone who was sending emails around in relation to the, what the, making sure that she had the titles correct for the BMI and ASCAP filings or whatever it was. I don't remember. <laughs> so you were completely unaware of the juxtaposition of it. You were just writing it as this kind of pure thing. Yep. I was, aware, I was unaware of the juxtaposition when we were writing it completely. Do you think that makes it easier to get to that place of emotion that you need to, to kind of convey what the song is doing out with that? Or I guess, it, again, it comes back to this idea of you're writing these songs as ones that could have existed in that time or could feel like right. lost soul so many songs. You might have had a slight hindrance had you had the idea of how it was going to be used, maybe? You know, that's a great question. I think because we were really just trying to write these lost soul songs and we, you know, by using these original singers that had these original voices that we, you know, that we worked to track down, we were basically just trying to write something that Butch might have sung or that the Shy Lights might have sung or that, you know, the OJs might have sung at that time. And, you know, and I made a lot of effort to try to get the recordings to sound kind of like that too. I mean, they have a modern polish in some respects, but, you know, when we did the drums for, uh, for all the brawl songs, for example, it was very limited miking. And it was a, we tried to set it up with kind of an old style kit and we had, you know, limited miking that we did intentionally. Uh, I forget the name of the technique, but it was essentially you have like one over the shoulder, one kind of pointed at the mic or at the kit from the front. And a couple other little pieces to fill in as necessary, but it was really it was you know I think maybe drum snare and then a couple other overheads in different positions, uh, and that was it. And we were trying to create 
what they might have done at that time sonically uh, as well. And so in the case of the drive-in song, we were thinking of kind of like a late 60s vibe and, you know, sort of smooth late 60s. And that had to do with the instrumentation and the, the choice of melodies and the way that the harmonies were used and as if it might have existed at the time. That's kind of what we were what we were working on. And I don't know that it, if if I knew how it was going to be used in the film, would that have made any difference? I don't know. I mean, Craig did, obviously, but it was easy for me to stay focused. I will say that. Like, I'm just focused on making this song with Craig based on what he's, the information he's given me um, instead of, oh, I have to make a song that's going to sound good in a car in this space. Well, to make anything, you know, in that domain, you have to be focused. Is that a different kind of focus that you're using when it comes to something like Bone Tomahawk when you know exactly how it fits in? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think that was, I think in, in the case of Bone Tomahawk, I think I probably was a little bit more thinking about the story and the, and where things fit in the context of the story. Um, I certainly was aware of that as it, as we were working on that material, I was definitely aware of where everything fit into the narrative and, and said, okay, well, I, you know, for example, in that one, there's these string pieces that happen at different times across, across the picture. and I wanted to make sure to reuse thematic ideas that were in the earlier one. And in the second one, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is happening later in the film. So I'm going to use this material in a slightly less obvious way, bury it in like the under, in the lesser voices rather than in the front thing. So it's kind of like you're remembering the stuff, but it's transformed. That's the concept that makes sense if you understand the story. That really wouldn't work if I didn't know what the story was, you know, or how it's manifesting in the space. And that had to do with my instrumentation choices. So it could be that in the case of this, of, you know, brawl or dragged, if I was thinking about like, I might make choices related to the, to the instrumentation or the density or the timbre of stuff, thinking about how it would fit in the context later in the film, if I knew that, but I will say, this is, this is what Craig did basically. And then he used that information when he was making those decisions. I just wasn't part of that, that decision-making, um, as it were. And I, I think that was, that was intentional. I think he did it in part because he wanted me to have the experience of seeing the films for the first time and not know the, the stuff because he wanted, he wanted to share the movie with me that way. And that was, I said, okay, that's fine. I can, if I felt like it was a hindrance, I would have asked to be doing it differently. But I think instead it was just a different process. And we were talking earlier about different processes, and I think this is an example of like, it's an odd process, but it results in what it results in. How did that function for something like Brawl, when the music is used to establish the setting and the atmosphere of a particular place in the film? That was, I think in, the, in those cases, he did, he gave me more information. Like, uh, as opposed to the songs where I didn't know the context really other than the lyrics and the fact that he said they were going to play on radios, at least in the cases of the instrumental music in, in Brawl, the incidental stuff he told me is like well this is going to be playing at a prison and this is going to be you know this one is like the love thing or like it's it's bradley and and his wife and so we're thinking about you know he's seeing his wife and so we're going to have something in there that's a little bit more romantic sounding at some point that had a flute in it and i think we took the flute out but so he did give me settings a little bit for all of the incidentals in that song or in that in that film it was like we and part of they all had titles that were and they were we wrote more of them too than were used in the final film. He had extra spots where he thought they could go in, and he said, "Okay, well, this is the setting. This is the setting. This is the setting." 
it was, he didn't tell me a lot, but he did say, this is the setting. He sort of told me like, this is the image that we're seeing on screen or it's a prison or it's the, I mean, I knew the movie was a prison movie. It's called cell block 99. <laughs> so he didn't feel like he was giving anything away to tell me that they're going to a prison. It's not totally a prison movie though. Like it takes a little no, bit of time to, you know. Yeah. You're right. It's not, it's not, it's not totally. A, in fact, it's a, I think I've, I've seen some people say about the movie, they're like, boy, they don't get to the prisons for quite a while considering that it's called cell block 99. <laughs> but in fact, I think it's like an hour or more before he finally makes his way to cell block 99. If at least an hour. I think if you watch it going in clean though, it's quite, it feels well paced. Like it feels like, no, no well paced isn't the term. It feels logically paced, I think. Be yeah, the way I, would I think it's it. a, I think it's a natural story. I mean, I think yeah, na- you know, natural Craig's organic. In- that's a better description. I think it, that's yeah. Craig's interest is in the characters. You know, he he's interested in creating realistic, strong characters, and then putting them in situations and seeing what's going to happen. In fact, he doesn't he doesn't know the a lot of times he doesn't know what's going to happen when he writes the story. I think, in fact, he said in in dragged he didn't know at the end of the movie when he started it, who was going to be alive and who wouldn't, you know, he didn't have that sense. He just had characters and situations and scenes. And then he starts writing what he thinks is true to the characters and then sees where it sort of takes him and what people should do based on who he thinks they are. And he, you know, and he also was trying to create characters that, you know, that are imperfect, you know, that have, you know, different flaws and, and, and mentalities and spaces and structures. And then he throws them in an environment and sees in his mind, what would happen if these people came together without a sense of where they're going to go. Yeah. I think what you're saying there as well about the way that he didn't know where it was going to go makes sense for that film in terms of, it's very much about who needs it the most, isn't it? It's kind of driven by this primal thing, which Mm -hmm. is any, which could be quite a good navigator when you're in the process for it. Yeah, and if you think about it from the from the writing perspective, you know, when you start crafting these characters, until you start imbuing them with, uh, with personality, which it cre- it's just created through dialogue, and until you start giving them character, which has to do with what actions they take, and and how they respond when they come in contact with other characters, and what actions they take in those spaces, even if you have a sort of a sense at the beginning that, like, once they come in contact with someone else in a story, and something happens. You realize that they can't be exactly who maybe you imagined him in the first place unless you just sort of had everything in your head from the beginning. But that's not how he how he functions. He doesn't have that sense. So he just puts people in spaces and sort of lets them go. And then as a result, they build up. I mean, you, you talked before about like who needs it the most. I think he he realizes as he the as the project goes or as the writing goes along who it makes the most sense for to need this or that the most in, in the environment, instead of having an idea at the beginning of who is going to need it the most. So he doesn't try to steer the picture or steer the script into that idea. Is that a similar thing from a composer's point of view? What I'm saying there about, you know, the kind of primal urge to it and the fact that it's an innate thing by him giving you a lack of information is almost restricting the need for conscious thought, which could inhibit creativity and kind of tapping into something more natural for you. That's an interesting idea. I think the, the, I definitely believe in, I mentioned earlier process. And then if you just follow a process, you'll get to good results. And I think uh, as, a, as a composer, if I trust my developmental techniques, if I trust that I have, like, my trust, my instinct, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Is this a sound interesting or not? If I trust that stuff and just let myself follow the process, I think I will get to good results. Um, and 
uh, rather than goal focused, like I want to go here, how do I get to there? Instead, it's just, I'm going to trust the process and that eventually will take me someplace. And that's kind of how I approach lots of things is through, um, uh, through I, 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 I'm much more a process focused person than a goal oriented person. Um, I mean, in some ways, if you look at my, you know, my career, that's a, it's a, an example of what happens when you don't have specific goals, because I've, I'm involved in tons of different kinds of projects that are all, all over the map. And some of them are like, are things that if 20 years ago, I would never have set a goal to work on this or not. I mean, film scoring is a good example. I never sought the, a career as a film composer. I never sought a, I didn't think I'd be writing songs for the OJs and, and to Butch or, or, you know, any of this stuff, but that's, you know, that's just kind of where my career took me. Um, by doing stuff that I enjoyed and found interesting. And that's, those opportunities came. Does that help you trust your instincts when you're in the process itself? Like if you trust them in a wider sense and just go with what feels right, does that make you have more trust in them when you're working on something quite specific creatively? I think that does. Yeah, I think so. I think I do believe that if I trust the process, I'll, good things will result. You know, we were talking about you know, writing a hundred songs and, you know, some of them will be good. I think it's connected to that idea. Like I, I do have confidence that, that if I do trust the process, I'll have interesting content. And, you know, it's tough because music isn't how I, I mean, it is how I pay for my life in the sense that I'm a music professor, but music is not how I pay for my life in the sense that I don't make a living, uh, you know, writing music and selling it. And so, you know, if I, if I had to write, if I had to make a living writing music, would I have different a different process or I do different kinds of things. I, I don't know. It's, you know, I, it's, it's hard to say. I probably would have to make some different music that, you know, and seek things that had a more of a, a potential for income, but I, I, I don't. Instead, I let myself kind of do whatever I think is interesting. And some of these projects have worked out and been really rewarding. And some of them have been financially, you know, successful and other things haven't. And that's, and I, I can kind of do that in a way because I have this steady job as a music professor that allows me to just make, as long as I keep producing, they're happy. <laughs> yeah. To make you more willing to take risks. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can, I'm allowed to kind of do whatever I want. And that's, you know, if I try a piece that doesn't work, well, it's okay. It doesn't work. I remember when I was at the premiere for Brawl and they started talking about the like the, the business people were talking about what they're going to do and how this is going to go and where they're going to try to send it. I was like, oh man, I'm glad I'm not thinking about that stuff. I'm glad I just have to put my head down and, and write the music and uh, do the best I can and deliver it to them. And then, and, and then I'm, I, I enjoyed being done with the process there. That was a, kind of a nice, it was nice for me. I'm not a, I'm not a business savvy person. <laughs> I haven't been getting that way and it's fine. It's okay. Wait, wait, so they, they were talking about like releasing it in terms of how far they were going to push the release in cinemas and stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff. It got quite a wide that, release, though, didn't it? It got a good release. It got it got a lot of good reception. It was. It's not that the, that they didn't the things weren't doing things were you know things went pretty well for that movie, and obviously it made, it made a lot of money for for them, and and it's what paid for drag to happen, you know, and like you know, I mean that's what I mean. Bones Tomahawk was such a success that you know Craig then got control of his films you know like before bone tomahawk when you know this unknown filmmaker is going to make something he doesn't you know there wasn't a huge budget on that but yeah, there was control. still a lot it's he 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 had mostly he had mostly control on bone he had a most he had he had a lot of control but he didn't have a hundred percent control after bone 
was a big success, uh, then he had, then he was like, great. We, you know, when they realized, oh, if we trust Craig's instincts, he's going to give us, you know, a return. Then they, they did that again on Brawl and they're like, oh, if we trusted him again and it was a success, so we can continue to keep rolling. Yeah. Ownership. And I think that that's what's fun for me is that, you know, because Craig has ownership over these films in the sense that he has a lot of, you know, creative control. If he says, hey, I want to make, you know, a bunch of noise music uh, and, you know, are you interested? I'll be like, yep, let's make some noise music <laughs> and whatever you think it is, let's have fun and explore it. <laughs> Fortunately, our, ta- our tastes overlap a lot. They're not, they're not the same, but they're, they're very complementary and our skills are complementary. I mean, I think my skills as an editor and as a, a songwriter and as an orchestrator and arranger complement very well Craig's ideas for melody and rhythm in particular. And emotion. He taps into emotion, I think, in a lot of ways better than I do. I, I'm interested in kind of like finding a, a space and sitting at that edge and just sort of like dragging out as long as possible. And he's a bit more like direct, strong emotions in the lyrical connection and, and bigger melodies and stuff like that. So I think, it, I think our, our sensibilities complement each other pretty nicely. It's part of the reason those scores have worked so well, the fact that that had been pre-established before you went into working on them. And like you said, you've been composing for like 30 years, whatever, or working on music. Completely. Or, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, this is one of those, when I was talking earlier about trusting, you know, like trusting the process and, and letting things go where they go. Going back to the, so I was in, I went to college in the 90s and Craig and I were friends back then and we did some music together and then we kind of went our own ways in, in this, you know, physically. He was living in New York and I was, living in some different spaces, Boston, and, and, and I was back in music school. And then I was a PhD student in music in Buffalo in the late 90s and early 2000s. And Craig had been playing in some bands, but he wanted to get into some other bands. And he's like, all right, you and I are going to be in a band together. We're going to record something. And I said, yeah, great, let's do it. Because I loved working with Craig and making music with Craig. And, and he was a great friend. And so we wanted to find an excuse to get together in large part. We started going hiking a couple of years previously too, where we'd get together and go on like a hiking trip in the summer. And that was a way we could get together and hang out, you know, once a year for a four day camping trip. Anyway, so we made this band called Wombat and we recorded our first album and like just, you know, in a studio with one mic and, you know, like we recorded with the drums and then I, I recorded some guitars to it and we recorded vocals quickly and you know made a little ep and it was a ton of fun to make and my some of my friends in grad school were like what you know what are you doing like what is this stuff like what are you why are you spending time on this it's like because it was a blast we had a great time and we craig and i wanted to make music and so then a couple years later we were working on more wombat we worked on another wombat album and i learned a lot making those but it was it was in part because we had a blast it was in part because i liked the music and i just said this is a place i want to spend my time after that, we formed another band. Later, we switched in for Wombat. I was singing. We switched to Realm Builder, where we changed stylistically a little bit in terms of our influences. And with Realm Builder, we were also uh, Craig became the singer instead of instead of me. Uh, he has a slightly richer, deeper voice, which I think worked well for that music. And uh, so I coached him a little bit more in the vocals and stuff. And we made three albums as a Realm Builder. So by the time Brawl came around. Uh, or basic bone first by the time that came around we'd made seven albums together over the course of 15 years yeah certainly if we hadn't made all that stuff together there's no way that we could have made that stuff and even when we were making brawl you know we knew how to make songs we knew how to make that happen and uh in some ways it was sort of you know ridiculous when craig's like i want to make the realistic 70s soul songs 
with my friend and you know yeah we've made some heavy metal albums together that they would say yes you can do that but we knew we could make it happen and so we wrote these demos and we just figured it out and then i you know put the the recordings together with some people and friends i know back in wisconsin and we got this local soul singer to sing all the demos for us uh adi adi armor um sung all the the, the the demos for us and sung on a couple of the final tracks and he did all the backing vocals and he was amazing but it was through that process that we're like oh these are actually really good soul songs we felt like they were they matched the tone of what we were going for completely it came out of the fact that we worked for 15 years on doing other stuff just pursuing things that we thought were interesting i didn't we didn't think they were going to turn into anything like i didn't know i didn't expect to make wombat and have that be like we're going to be going and touring the world as a metal band. Like it didn't happen. That wasn't what we were trying to do. We just wanted to make the music together and nothing happened with Wombat <laughs> except that we made some albums that we have in our, in our basement and we shared with some friends and you know, they, they were, it was reviewed by a couple of random people. Actually the realm builder stuff was, was beyond a success beyond I, you know, what I'd hoped for when we made it in the sense that, you know, it's been pressed and, and released and a bunch of people like it and it's got its, you know, its fans and like, great, that's perfect. Like, that's all, that's what we wanted for it was to find some connection with some people and have a blast making it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.